Welcome to the Adoptee Thoughts Podcast. I am your host, Melissa Guida Richards, an author, adoptee, and mom. Each week, we will delve into the nuances of adoption, as well as tips for how to bring up difficult discussions in your adoptive family. And most importantly, we will not shy away from tough topics. So thanks for joining me today, and let's jump into your weekly dose of Adoptee Thoughts. All right. Can you please introduce yourself? Um, I'm Nicole Chung. I'm an author, writer, and editor. Can you please share a little bit about your adoption story? Sure. Um, You know, I am the only U.S.-born Korean-American adoptee that I've met so far. I'm not assuming like I'm the only one or anything, but of course, um, as most of your listeners will know, um, you know, there's there's a robust Korean adoption program and has been for several generations. And so, um, you know, every other Korean adoptee I've ever met was is is was born in Korea and was adopted and came to the U.S. My birth parents are actually Korean immigrants, uh, so they moved. Uh, well, they came through, I believe, Hawaii and then eventually uh, to Washington State, which is where I was born. Um, They came here just like a couple years before I was born. So I'm the first member of my birth family who was born in the U.S. Uh, Everyone else, including like my older sister, uh, was born in Korea. Um, And I was born super premature. So I I don't know the exact week, but the doctors estimated around 26, like 27 weeks gestation. So a super preemie. Um, I weighed two pounds and this was, uh, you know, prenatal care is prenatal and, and, um, and neonatal care has come like a very, very long way since then. Uh, so at the time I was born, especially, the doctors were predicting like a lot of um, health problems, a lot of medical issues, some potential disabilities. And my birth parents worked, uh, as many immigrants do, like all day, every day, no weekends, no holidays. They didn't have health insurance um, and were pretty much putting everything they had into like this small business trying to stay afloat. Um, and so they were really, they were really overwhelmed, and eventually became convinced. You know, adoption was probably the best thing for me. Um, that's what they thought. And then they were also, as I would learn many years later, I mean, they were having problems in their marriage, in their family, um, and so it also would have been kind of a tumultuous situation to introduce a newborn into. But uh, their primary motivation, I've always been told, and then they, you know, they confirmed this when we reunited was, um, you know, there really were a lot of like problems, health problems predicted, and they just didn't think they'd be able to care, care for me. Um, you know, especially if, if they didn't have health insurance at the time. Thank you for sharing that with me. I, I have met a lot of Korean adoptees, but like you said, most of them are international adoptees. Uh, I, I myself am an international adoptee from Colombia, And, um, I, I, find it so interesting how many similarities that we do face even together as like your domestic adoptee and me as an international adoptee because we have this transracial adoptee identity as well and um you wrote the memoir all you can ever know uh did you expect the impact it had on the adoption community you know, it's it's such a hard thing to gauge, like the impact on the adoption community. I mean, thank you for saying that. That's like an incredible honor. I don't know. Like, of course, mine is not the first uh, and certainly won't be the last like adoptee memoir. Um, I was, you know, what I was more surprised about, honestly, was like um, mainstream like response. So it's not that I thought the book would be bad or like wouldn't sell, but I I don't know. I think I did assume if adoptees found it, it would mean something, you know, to at least some of them. Not that not that my story is necessarily like anyone else's. You know, there's areas of overlap, of course, but we are all unique. Our adoption stories are unique. You know, I don't want to try to speak for I'm not qualified like to speak for everyone else who's adopted or everyone else who's a transracial Korean adoptee. But because there are, you know, unfortunately, um, not enough, like not enough, enough adoption stories from the adoptee perspective. I know what a book like this would have meant to me 10 years ago, 20 years ago, even as a kid. So I did hope that if adoptees found it, first, they didn't hate it. And second, that it would, that it would, it would resonate with some of them, even of course, you know, it couldn't be their exact experience. Um, and I'm, I'm really thankful that it has like, had, um, you know, some reach beyond the adoption community. Um, I, I do think more adoptees need to be telling our stories. I think our voices should be centered in these conversations, right? So 
Um, you know, I'm glad my book is, is one by no means the only like example of that. And I hope, I hope it's a trend that continues. Same, same. And I, I definitely agree with the, you saying it made adoption more mainstream. And I think that's what was so important to me as an adoptee for seeing our stories. Like I know you appeared on Trevor Noah and that was just <laughs> like, it, it, it's just so good to see that representation. And I know you wrote a piece, I think it was for the guardian about like all adoptees, their stories need to be heard or something like that. And I, I find it so vital for us all to to really see the importance of us telling our stories from our perspectives as the adoptees because like you mentioned a lot of a lot of the books out there aren't written by adoptees they're usually by adoptive parents so yeah. that, I, th I think that's an important angle say that that guardian piece grew out of like going on the road and talking with a lot of people about the book and realizing like I mean, I was very gratified when anyone said they read it, had spent time with it, enjoyed it. I I do know, and it's come up over and over in conversations with people, like, um, they would always, people, a lot of times people would want to know, like, are you still in touch with your adoptive family? Like, do you consider yourself close to them? Like, and I realized after a while, these questions were all like kind of little tests almost. Like, it's like if I had said we were estranged, which we're not, but like, if I had said that, it's like, I had a feeling some people would like kind of stop listening then. Um, because it would be very easy to, to like dismiss me as this like stereotype of an angry adoptee. Um, when of course, like even adoptees who are estranged from their families or have issues within them, like it's so much more complicated than that. And so like that guardian piece was really about like the fact that we really do need to hear a wide range of adoption stories and not just ones like mine, like not just the ones that people might find comfortable or like accessible. Um, I did realize after a point that like, you know, my closeness with my adoptive family, despite very real complications and issues that we had and have, um, it sort of like made me more palatable, honestly, like, and especially to a lot of white people. Um, you know, there was that combination of being like an adoptee and being mm -hmm. an Asian American woman. And if they had also thought I was really bitter or like estranged, would they have listened? I don't know. Um, I, I like to think, I like to think good writing and stories can reach people no matter what, but um, yeah, so that, that piece really kind of came out of this, this place of recognizing that like to some degree, it is still my relationship with my adoptive family and what people think about that, that determines how accessible they think I am. Um, and my story is true the way I told it, but if it had been different, like, or another adoptee's story where maybe they don't have like the privilege of being able to be as close, um, to their families anymore, their adoptive families, like those stories are just as important um, for people to hear and to think about. Yes, uh, I think that's an important point. And it brings me to my next question. Did you receive uh, a lot of backlash or did you find because your your story was a little bit more palatable that you it, it wasn't too bad? Oh, gosh. I mean, of course, like people will read all kinds of things into your story, no matter like how quote unquote positive you are. Um, and like, I am pretty frank in the book, like I didn't want to sugarcoat it, I wanted mm -hmm. it to be accessible, and relatable, but I, I did really want to acknowledge it's complex, like my family and I, we've had, we've had our issues, we've had our struggles, we've had to learn how to communicate about like certain things. And there were definitely things we never talked about when I was growing up. Um, and I don't think that was particularly like helpful. So um, yes, I have for sure had some backlash. It's it's by no means the majority of feedback, but like I have had um, like different people, different readers, I think probably mostly white readers. I think some of them adoptive parents, but not all like they'll send me a message maybe through my website contact form and, um, I had one woman like tell me she felt so sorry for my adoptive parents because they had me for a child and I was so ungrateful. And you know, it, this is all like, very familiar. I know it'll still be hurtful for some people to hear. And I apologize for that. But I think many adoptees who've ever expressed any complicated feelings about adoption at all <laughs> will be familiar with that, that kind of backlash. And I have definitely gotten it. Um, you know, sometimes even at events like to my face and you know, there is a reason I'm very grateful I waited to write this book till I really felt ready because I think like, again, like 10, 15 years ago, getting comments like that would have been devastating for me, mm -hmm. um, really hard to deal with. And I don't enjoy it now, but I've done a lot of work and I'm just in a place where I can, 
I can let a lot of that roll off my back, honestly, when it happens. Um, you know, it's not, it's not something I could have probably dealt with very well, though, like 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely can relate. When I, when my, one of my first pieces, uh, it was like my HuffPo piece about uh, finding out that I was an adoptee mm-hmm. at 19. When that went viral, um, I, I did not expect the response that people would have. And it, it kind of, I, I don't think that I was at a place that I am now where uh, I can let some of those comments just like roll off. And it's just, if it's you're hard. an adoptee. Yeah. And if you're an adoptee and you're sharing your story, whether you have a podcast or a blog or whatever, you, you kind of get used to the comments after a while. And uh, mm-hmm. I I have found that writing helps me process things with my adoption. And mm-hmm. it really helped my relationship with my adoptive parents. Um, did any of that, those feelings or experience uh, relate to why you write about your adoption? I think when I first started writing about it, I wouldn't call it catharsis necessarily. Like, um, I did feel like there were things that I, it would help me process, I guess, and think about. I remember the first essay I wrote about adoption, and I never published it in any form. Like, I wrote it in a small writing group I was in years ago, and um, it would be years before I published anything at all publicly. But um, I just remember how hard that was, even though I knew, like, I was only planning to show it to four people. Um, it took me, like, so long to write it. I would write it. I would read it. I would realizing, I realized I was doing that thing you do where you censor yourself, where it's like so hard. And I don't know what it was, a combination of guilt and like fear. And, uh, you know, maybe I was still a little bit like in denial about some things then, but whatever the case, it was, I didn't find it to be this deeply cleansing experience. And I also just found it to be so hard. It felt like I was like picking at a scab or like, just like every draft would like, I'd scrape a little bit deeper and there would be more truth there and it would be like more painful. Um, And so, I mean, that actually was a very good indication to me that I wasn't ready to publish about it yet because um, I didn't know what public feedback would be like, but I knew I wasn't ready for that, you know, at that point in my life. Um, But I will say it helped a great deal in terms of thinking and uh, thinking about these things uh, and like talking them over with my adoptive parents. um, Like, I think to just my search and reunion and then the fact that I did start writing about adoption publicly meant, you know, we kind of had to talk about these, com- uh, we had to have these conversations that in many cases we'd sort of avoided or like tiptoed around when I was a kid. Um, my white adoptive family was never really comfortable talking about race. And when I experienced racism, I think mostly I hid it from them, but like they didn't really know how to talk to me about that either. Um I didn't like know any other Koreans until I went to college. So like there was just a lot that we never talked about. And I do think if I hadn't started writing about it um, and, and also, you know, if I hadn't searched for my birth family, like I just don't know that we ever would have had those discussions. And like you, I think it did bring us closer. The fact that we had to. When you write your pieces on adoption, do you share them with your family first before they're published or do you wait until after? There, it depends. Uh, If I write about my biological sister, my sister, Cindy, um, especially if I'm sharing anything like about her life, I always like I ask her, is it okay? And I also ask each time, I don't assume just because I've said something, I've shared something once that she's approved that like, she's okay with it. Like, for example, being in a book, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that's an open conversation. You know, if it's just my thoughts and feelings about it, no, I don't run that by anyone. And um, at this point in my life, you know, both my adoptive parents um, have passed away in the last two and a half years. So, um, I mean, it's we b- before they passed, like they read the whole book before they got a chance to read the whole book before um, it was published. And that was less like running it by them per se, and more just like, I want you to be aware of everything. And if you want to talk about anything, we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, they didn't ask me to take anything out or anything like that. Um, but like, I did show them the book that was really important to me. I mean, I showed it to my birth family as well. You know, my husband read it. Um, at this point, even my older daughter has read it. <laughs> so like, I think, I think it's important for me when I'm writing about family, like that they not be surprised. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I expect them to agree with everything. Um, you know, and except for my sister, I don't really give people like veto power. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I would give it to my kids. Like, at this point. <laughs> um, but like, you know, 
I think it was just really important for me, like with my adoptive family, um, it was less like read and approve this. It was more like, I really want you to be aware. I don't want there to be any surprises when you do see it out there in the world. And I want to have plenty of time for us like to talk about it before publication. Um, so yeah, but they read it, I think in a very, um, very open-hearted, generous way. Um, I was really anxious to show it to them, like anxious about it. And, um, and they were really both great and supportive about it. So I felt, I felt quite fortunate in that. Uh, I'm so sorry for your loss. I just lost my adoptive father this past September. So thank you. Thank you. Um, but I am always interested in other creators and their process. And especially as adoptees, I think it's interesting how we kind of handle um, our adoptive families and birth families. And mm-hmm. and for me, I, I do a similar thing. Like my birth family, uh, I, I really try to protect their stories because it's I, I feel like a place of vulnerability and it's really not my place, the same type of situation. But when it comes to my adoption story, I, I like giving my my mom like a heads up. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll usually send her a copy and be like, this is coming out. Like, let me know if you want to chat and mm-hmm. uh, the same type of thing. And I, I think it's so important for adoptive families in general to have an open line of communication and, um, If I had these types of uh, supports um, of like being part of the adoptee community and having my writing as a kid, I think it it would have helped things out a lot more. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm glad that there are people like you and others that are, are kind of paving the way for more of us to to take control of our narrative. Has adoption had an impact with you and raising children? Because I know for me, um, it has had a huge impact um, on motherhood and my journey and postpartum and all of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's hard. It's so hard for me to pick out like specific examples other than the obvious ones. Like the first time I saw... Um, my kids are my biological kids. So like the first time I saw them, they're just this instant, like, not just recognition, but like, um, like this feeling like, oh my gosh, like for, for so many other people, it's like taken for granted that they have this recognition that there's this resemblance. You can pick out your nose or your chin or something, um, expressions even, but like for me, that was all brand new. And it just, it never felt like anything to take for granted. Even the fact that like, um, I was present for like uh, at the beginning of their life, right? Like my my adoptive parents adopted me when I was two and a half months old. So mm-hmm. I don't know really much of anything about the first two and a half months. I was mostly in the neonatal intensive care unit. And then I think I was transferred to the hospital nursery while I was, I was a ward of the state technically for a short time before my adoption. Um, but they took me like right out of the hospital. So like, I don't have anyone who can tell me about that time in my life um even reunited with my birth family like they remember you know very little um like my sister never saw me in the hospital um she didn't even know that I had survived my birth my you know they told my sisters that I had died at birth because they thought that would be easier for them um and my I mean my my birth mother and my birth father I think they each visited me once in the hospital but like they don't they don't really have a lot of memories of that time either so I was kind of on my own. So just the, the idea that like I've been present for like every moment of my child, children's life and like can share that knowledge with them. You know, I can tell them their birth stories and I can tell them what it was like when I was expecting them. And like I can tell them like what their very early days and weeks and months were. Again, other people take this for granted. I don't think adoptees can or do. Um, to me, it just seems like such a privilege to be able to give this to them and share this with them. Um, you know, and the other ways I think parenting as an adoptee shows up, it's more subtle. I mean, it is very much in the like cultural um, inheritance, like no matter how much I might try to learn or care about my Korean heritage, I know ultimately I don't have the same relationship to it as I would have if not for the adoption. And that means my kids won't have the exact same, you know, type of relationship to it they might have had otherwise. Um, Mm -hmm. So that I don't want to frame that solely in terms of loss. It's just, but it's something I do think about. Like, 
Um, you know, what does that mean for them too and their identities? And that's very much their story to tell, you know, but I, so I don't try to tell that for them, but it is something I think about, um, you know, and then there are like other things and like more existential things. I think like a lot of adoptees, I do have this, this deep fear of people I love leaving. Um, and even if it's like unwilling, like I know my adoptive parents didn't want to die when they did, but like in grief, I have really been experiencing like, oh, like a tiny part of me feels like this was a betrayal. Like I'm not, I'm not angry at them, but I just like, can't believe it. Like, and this was like, yeah. one of my deepest fears growing up and, and now they're gone. And it was much sooner than I would have expected. So I have been really surprised how that's, um, how the adoption has come into play, like in terms of my grief. Um, yeah. Personally, for me, it's it's been very hard because my relationship with my adoptive father wasn't great growing up. But the past few mm -hmm. years, we were really able to connect. And the way he was a grandfather to my children was just like this beautiful thing that I didn't expect to have or experience. Yeah. And so like you mentioning, it's, it's another like loss and the fear of losing people that that definitely has another uh, big impact on my grief as well and it's good to hear like it like someone give words to what I've been experiencing um, I'm so sorry you're going through that too um, thank you it's tough it's tough but I I feel like loss for adoptees in general of adoptive parents is like a, another huge weight that we have to go through um, because we already lost our first parents. And now, yeah. like, uh, you know, eventually most people will, will lose their parents at some time. Yeah. Um, and it's it's something I feel like we need to prepare for or, you know, uh, realize that there, it's going to be a little more nuanced than other folks, um, probably. Yeah. And at the same time, it's like so hard to prepare for it. Like you can know intellectually that it's coming, but like, I mean, it's just, it was interesting. Cause like my dad, my adoptive dad died very kind of suddenly, like he was here one day and gone the next. And my mom had cancer and it was months of like knowing that she was going to die. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, even with her, like knowing it was coming, like I was just like so terrified of the other side and like had no idea what to expect. Um, so I do think it's true that like in general adoptees should probably like, uh, I think it could be helpful for some to be told, like, you know, not that you're ever like completely done probably like with your <laughs> thoughts and feelings about adoption, but like, I think they probably already know different life events like birth or becoming a parent or you know, marriage or partnership or whatever that is, like, it'll, it'll just keep coming back at different points in your life for all sorts of reasons. Um, and, and losing your adoptive parents is one of those times where um, it just, your adoption will at least come to bear, I think, a little on how you experience that loss. And it's just, yeah, like you said, like another reminder, adoption is in itself, like it begins with a loss. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't really yet figured out how to put words to all of this. But it is, it is something I think about like all the time and, you know, something I've been talking about too, like in, in like, grief counseling and therapy, um, just like how, how closely adoption and like the grief are sort of entwined right now. Mm -hmm. have, have you found that it's impacted your writing at all? I know you had, I, I think it was an article for the Times about losing your mother um, during a pandemic. And uh, mm -hmm. that was a, a very moving piece, but uh, did you have difficulty writing that? Yes. Um, I also wrote recently, just this past week, I had a, an essay in Time magazine um, online and in print. Uh, and it was like a more intimate look, I guess, at that loss. It was the New York Times piece was very focused on like, how do you grieve alone or like socially distanced? You know, how do you find support when you can't see people? Um, and I interviewed several, um, you know, like helping professionals, like therapists about that to get uh, really suggestions and advice for people reading. Um, and it was like a personal, but like far less personal piece than mm -hmm. the time essay, which is about, I mean, just the experience of being across the country when my mother was declining um, and like having to talk, you know, with her and her caregivers, like over, you know, like Skype. Um, and like it, I mean, I shared like what her last words to me were and, 
and and talked a lot about the aftermath, like given that the pandemic continues to stretch on and like we are still many of us separated from loved ones, like much longer than we thought, you know, like how, how does it feel to grieve in this whole throughout the year? Like, how do you find ways to really honor your grief? How do you ritualize something like this when all of the rituals that are normally available to you, like in communal mourning and grieving are not an option? You know, when you're live streaming funerals and when you can't go visit the grave, like what do you do? Um, mm-hmm. And yes, that piece was really hard to write. <laughs> I I have found all of this is, I found it something that I, I do feel like I want to write about. Although I think, I think I'll probably take a little break from grief writing for a bit. And I'm working on my next book. And I know, I know a lot of this will come into that book. Um, but I, I also think it could be helpful, like for people, because so many, so many people are going through like similar experiences, right? Every loss is different. So I can't really compare, like I can't even compare the loss of my father to the loss of your father. Like they're completely different relationships, but, and we're very different people. Um, but, but so many people are going through this like distanced grieving process right now. And so as hard as those pieces were to write, um, I, I don't know, I was, I was, I wrote them in the hope that maybe it would help some people feel a little less alone in their grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, it's just something so many of us are are living through right now. Um, and so many people, even if they are not grieving people, are grieving the losses of experiences. Um, you know, I had a cousin delay his wedding. Um, we've had, you know, students who can't have graduations. We've had, um, a lot of missed like experiences. And so those, those two are like little or big, like griefs that people are, are dealing with. Um, yeah. And I will say one more thing, sorry, about grieving during a pandemic, which is just that I have noticed like people instinctually kind of understand. I, I wouldn't say it's ever easy to grieve. It's certainly not, but I, I do know that like in terms of understanding, like everyone I talk to does seem to know or like grasp on like a fundamental level, like what grief is and what we're going through because they too are dealing with some type of loss or some type of separation that they wish they weren't dealing with. Um, I, I don't want to say like, Oh, it's made us more empathetic. That's a little too simplistic, but um, I don't think people had to like dig very deep, you know, when my mother died to understand like why it was so hard or like what grief felt like. Cause I just think a lot of them were experiencing like their own losses. It's been such a hard year. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Do you have any self-care tips for writing about such personal topics about grief and the complexities of adoption? Yeah. um, I don't know if there's self-care because, well, I can, I can talk a little bit about that. I mean, I, I have been and continue to go to therapy. I like therapy therapy, truly something everyone should try. Um, And I I just think it can really help to have that support. Um, I will say like, it's of course important to find someone who's like really like informed and competent in the area of adoption. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had a lot of, you know, probably very good therapists who didn't really get it. And so I spent like half the time explaining to them, like, you know, whether it was about adoption or race or something else. Like I remember oh, I've spent like a lot of this session explaining this might not be like so beneficial to me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, if you can find someone who really is like able to be helpful in these areas, especially, I think that's great. Um, And then like little things, I, um, I don't know, like I, I try to write other things too. So like when I'm deep into a project that is feeling like a lot of emotional labor to write, um, you know, I do, I take breaks and I do other things like, I just started writing an advice column for Slate and I mean, I really enjoy it. It's, mm-hmm. it's like fun and it's, it's personal in the sense that it's literally all my opinions, but it's not personal in that it is never about my life. Um, and I find that really, it's just a really nice break to get to work on that. Um, you know, like many people, of course I have a day job. I'm lucky right now to have a day job. So like, I don't get to write all the time every day anyway. And so that, that, that also makes it easier for me. I think it would be tough if I were trying to pull like all day writing days. Um, but yeah, taking breaks and, and writing about other things too, you know, making, checking out your supports and your support system. Um, and if it feels really bad, like really bad, and it's also not helping, like don't, it's okay to not, (laughs) you don't owe anybody your life or your story or your trauma. Um, if it's just not feeling good, you don't have to do it. Um, 
if it's hard, but you're still clearly getting something out of it and you feel like other people are getting something out of it, like that's different. But if, if it's not helping you at all in any way and it's just painful, that could be a sign, um, you know, to like kind of pause and do some other work and get some other support. And, you know, you can always come back to it. Like that's always an option. Um, but especially in this like really difficult year, like you don't have to force yourself to do work that hurts you. In general, one of my favorite pieces of writing advice is to like follow the sun and follow the joy. And I think especially as like writers of color, sometimes it can feel like people just want our traumas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's important to let yourself write about joy too. And and maybe maybe that, you know, maybe there are joyful aspects of adoption that you want to explore. That's fine. But I think it can be really hard to, if you're always writing about like the most painful things. Um, I'm trying to think what else. I mean, I don't know. I think so much of it just comes down to how supported and how if you're lucky enough to have people in your life who really love and understand you, you know, being able to talk to them about these things too. Um, Mm -hmm. Whether that's showing them your writing and talking about it or just talking with them, you know, um, taking breaks to do that. I think that can be really helpful too. Um, But yeah, and it's also always fine to not like, it's, it's always going to be part of you and part of your life adoption. And it's okay if like, if, if now is not the exact moment, you know, when you choose to tackle that narrative, especially for public consumption. Um, because once it's out there, like you are, you're going to hear, you're going to hear from people and some of it will be wonderful and gratifying and you'll feel like there's community. I mean, I get notes from adoptees all the time and it's my favorite, favorite thing. It feels like it's just such a privilege and such a joy for me to get to hear from fellow adoptees who've read the book. Um, Mm -hmm. And at the same time, like I get a lot of, I get a lot of crap too. And like once work is out there, some of that makes its way to you. If you're not in a good place, if you're not well supported, like if you're in a place where that's going to deeply, deeply hurt, um, you know, I think that is just something else to consider. It doesn't mean you don't write about it, but it, it is something you should be aware of if you're putting a story out there for public consumption. Like mm-hmm. you're going to hear a lot of feedback, some positive, some less so. I, I think that's so important, especially like taking a break, because there's been mm-hmm. times where I've tried to write about, uh, for example, like finding my, my birth family. And then I had to take like almost a year from like that particular piece. And it, there can be this pressure to to keep putting out our trauma like you mentioned especially as writers of color because people will eat that up (laughs) and then I I find that like the pieces that are more lighthearted and aren't showing like my personal wounds like they they really don't perform as well and that can seem very disheartening uh and it, it can make me and I know other uh, adoptees that I've talked to like feel like we always have to 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 be on and be willing to share everything about our lives, but we need to to focus on putting up some boundaries because it's all right. It's all right to take a break. Um, I was going to say one more thing: like just because like you have shared about something doesn't mean you have to do it forever. Like a lot of adoptees that I'm friends with who've been doing this work for a while, like you know they'll have times when they're really in it. Um, and then they'll have times where they're like clearly focused on like very different sorts of projects, like still projects that mean a lot to them. But like, I, it's okay to like also take a step back. Um, and you can be very like, you can get a lot out of the work and like, uh, feel very proud of it and all of that without doing it in that exact same mm-hmm. way forever. Um, so I don't know, like, that's just something else I wanted to say. I really, I believe we have so many stories and like adoption is like, obviously, so important to our lives as adoptees but like there's so much more there's so much more we can do and share about too and like I I don't know I I really hope people feel that freedom as well even as they continue to write what they want to write about adoption I've I've honestly found great joy because I recently started a, a job as a contributing editor at the Every Mom, and it's not all adoption content, and it's yeah. motherhood, and it's like uh, parenting with a, a disability, and like all these other topics that it allows me the freedom to be creative and not be in that that space with. Uh, trauma and pain all the time and so having that joy and those projects like you like you said it is very important um 
But do you have any advice for other adoptees looking to write memoir uh, specifically? Yeah, a lot of my advice is stuff I've kind of covered already, which is just like you do not owe anybody like your deepest pain, you know. And so, um, yes, your story is is yours to share. And if you want to, by all means. But also, um, you know, I guess I would just say like, I feel like as adoptees, you're pulled in two directions. One, like everybody, adopted or not, deserves and should have healthy boundaries. <laughs> and and at the same time, like I think a lot of adoptees, and I felt this, and I still feel this, like I feel this like need, this desire to help people understand adoption and like to help them really think about it critically and to recognize how complex it is. Like it is not the simple happy ending story that you think it is. This this whole idea of like adoption it's more than what you think has driven like so much of my work for like a decade now but at the same time like um I still have to recognize that like you know I'm just one person and so like this work is not mine alone thank goodness there are like so many people doing this and many doing it much better than me and so like it's not my sole burden to bear right like getting the world to understand adoption is complicated like we're all in this together if you're feeling kind of like uh, you just can't do it like right now. It's okay. There will be like a lot of other adoptees out there doing it, right? Um, so, I mean, that's one thing. And then in general, my tips for people writing memoir are very similar. Like you don't have to share just the things that hurt you. Like, um, you know, know that, especially if you're like a, a writer from some marginalized community, like it can often feel like especially mainstream outlets or publishers just want your trauma. But like there are, there is a like willing, eager audience out there of readers who like want so much more than that. Like you are so much more than like your trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that's one thing I think. And I have seen, you know, no one has to write memoir, of course, like no one has to write about their life. But I do think that I've seen over and over, both as a writer, and I would say even maybe more so as an editor who, who edits and publishes lots of other writers work. Um, my day job is as editor-in-chief of a magazine and I have just seen over and over like understanding and empathy I mean which is an overused term but still like I have seen that and like real community even and like solidarity grow out of people like reading other people's stories um and like being able to encounter them in this real authentic complicated way um I think readers are like there And I think there are always people, sure, there will always be people who don't get what you're doing or maybe don't like what you're doing. But remember, you do not write for those people. You know, when you write, if you choose to write, you write for the people who will get it and who will value your work and who will see what you are trying to say and who will recognize its importance, you know, and you just need to find like a reader like that. And once you find one, you find the next and the next and the next. Like, that's what it means to tell your story. Um... So yeah, I I always try to picture like my my ideal like open-minded, open-hearted reader who will who will get and care about what I'm trying to say. And that's who I write for. I don't write for the haters who show up in my inbox. <laughs> and I don't write for the people who leave one-star Amazon reviews. Um and I don't write for the people who think I'm ungrateful or angry. Like I write for the people who I think will get it, who I know will get it. And there are like so many of them out there. Do you mind me asking how long it, it took for your uh, for all you can ever know to to sell? Um, what happened? So you can ask. It's a fine question. <laughs> I, I'm trying to like think of what the answer is. Like, um, it was kind of a tough sell, and I've always wondered. Like, well, I did have some editors, and these were like at bigger houses. I mean, I had one editor just come out and ask me, like. You know, I mean, it, she said, like, it's really beautiful writing, but do you think anybody who's not Korean or adopted will read it? <laughs> I was like, wow. I didn't even know what to, how to answer. Like, I it was, <laughs> I just sort of felt speechless. Uh, and so and I was like, yes, um, because, of course, like many people do read outside their experience. I would mm-hmm. argue that's why we read, like one of many reasons. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, you know, people aren't asking this of white writers, but um yeah, I, you know, I I got like an amazing offer in the sense that um, Catapult, who published my book, like they were, they just deeply believed in it from the beginning. They threw everything they had behind it. I would say they had even more faith in the book than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just never doubted that it would do well. And it is, I mean, it has done really well um, for them. So I don't know, like, I think I found like the right publisher for that book. Um, of course, like, <laughs> 
you know, I mean, it was discouraging to get like pass after pass on it. Um, I'm not like an overly petty person, but it's occurred to me more than once. Perhaps some of those publishers regret it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's neither, that is neither here nor there. I think I had the perfect publisher for this book. And the reason, you know, what made them the perfect publisher, it goes back to like what I was saying before about like the ideal reader. Like they immediately got it and they immediately saw the void it was going to fill and they immediately understood like why it had value and was important. I never had to convince them of anything. If anything, they had to convince me. Like, we think it'll sell. We think it'll do okay. Because <laughs> I had heard so many times from people, like, I don't know what's the mainstream appeal. Like, it did start to affect my confidence a little bit. And um, and when I came to Catapult, they were like, nope, it's going to do great. Or we'll make sure it does great. Um, I will always just be incredibly thankful for the, the treatment and the respect and then the rollout that they gave it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. But how long did it, t- I mean, it's hard. Submission to publishers feels like years, <laughs> but it, it really is a matter of like weeks, like from when you send it, like your proposal or your book to when you hear yes or no from people. Like that is, that is a span of weeks usually. Um, so, yeah. Um, I personally, um, I'm going to go on sub with my, my memoir and in January, I think that's when we're going to start. Um, but I keep hearing like, oh, if your platform isn't gigantic, it's never going to sell. It's never going to sell. So I know that can be like discouraging for uh, new authors. And I heard that before, even before I sold my other nonfiction books. Um, do you have any advice for uh, listeners who, who are hearing about the dreaded platform? It's hard because, I mean, I can't say platform's unimportant. Um, I certainly don't believe it's the only thing uh, or even necessarily the most important thing by any means. I think most people are reading for like, you know, what grabs them, what engages them, like from a money perspective, what do they think they can sell? Um, Like, I think, I think at least like, uh, you know, at Catapult, I know they aren't looking, they look at the size of an author's platform, but I, I'm confident it's not the reason they say yes or no, because they have writers who aren't on Twitter, like at all. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. They're happy. I'm on Twitter. They're glad I have a platform, but I don't believe that's why they took the book, you know? Um, so like, I mean, there are publishers out there and a lot of them might be, they might be either smaller presses or indie presses. Like there are some wonderful indie presses. Um, but like, I don't think indies are even the only ones who like will look beyond that sort of thing. And like, really, I I think most editors and publishers, they really are looking for story first. They're looking for story. They're looking for voice. They are looking for like relevance and timeliness and if they think they can really sell it. Um, but And yeah, the platform is largely like, it tells them partly, can you help sell it? But even a large platform does not guarantee that your book will sell. And they know that too. Um, They know it really comes down to the story and the writing, like so much more than anything else. So it's not, I would never tell you platform's not important, but I truly don't think it's like the most important thing. And I think there are plenty of publishers that like know that. Um, It is probably, I mean, it, it is a factor now and it probably will be you know, in some capacity, it might not always be Twitter. I don't know what we'll have after Twitter, but (laughs) um, (laughs) I'm sure at this point, the expectation of the, of the modern author is that they will have some sort of like, like ability to help sell their own book. Um, So yeah, that's really what the platform discussion is about. All you can ever know, it recently went to the UK, right? yeah, um, there are, there's also like a Dutch edition and a Russian edition. Um, and yes, there is a UK edition. Um, and, you know, like my dream, of course, is like a Korean translation. Um, but, but yeah, oh. I mean, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just <laughs> well, fingers crossed, like, you know, it's, it's gotten yeah, really far. I, I think about it just because I know Korea... Um, I know there are a lot of people there interested in like adoption and also interested in having kind of a national reckoning about their adoption program. Um, and, you know, so that's, that's one reason I'd love to see a translation. And then also, I guess, just selfishly, like um, my, my birth father's first language is Korean and he's definitely fluent in English and he has read my book, but like, I know he would access more of it if there were a Korean translation. Um and so part of it is just me wanting to be able to share that with like 
him and like other people in my birth family for whom that would make it so much easier. Um, you know, I don't know. It's just something I think about, like, definitely. Yeah. Um, but both my parents, um, they immigrated to the United States. So English wasn't their first language. Um, my dad, he, he hasn't really been able to read any of my work, um, when he was alive because of that. So I, I think that's, you know, a very important point. Yeah. I I am so happy that you came on today and we were able to chat. Um, I think my last questions would be if you had any advice for adoptive parents or adoptees. Oh, gosh. Um, let's see. I mean, I'm asked a lot about advice for adoptive parents. And it's usually, I don't know if this is how you meant it, but it's usually in the context of like, if you adopt across racial lines, like, what do you need to know? And I'm always like, I'm not going to be able to give you in you know, 30 seconds, sort of like what you'll need to know. Um, but yeah, like I, one of the things I always tell people is like, you know, first of all, like read and follow the work of adoptees, like really listen to adult adoptees. Um, even if it makes you a little uncomfortable, like lean into that discomfort, like be willing to sit with that and think and question and doubt and learn. Um, you know, obviously there are like more practical considerations, like what kind of community do you live in? Like what sort of neighborhood, like school, um, religious communities, you know, other organizations, whatever, like what, what sort of environments will your, will your adopted child be in? And if they are, if they are a transracial adoptee and they don't look, if they're not white, like what, what is their experience going to be like? What do you think your community would be like through the eyes of that child? Are they going to have like, um, access to people who look like them and not just like seeing them, but the chance to maybe develop meaningful relationships. Like, um, or are they always going to be the only one in the room? And I think it's important to really think honestly and critically about like what your extended families are like and kind of what, what kind of, um, even if it's unintentional, like what kind of unexamined or un like questioned prejudice, racism, stereotypes could like surface, you know, I have heard from like so many adoptees, um, even if they didn't encounter these issues with their adoptive parents, like somewhere in the family, there'd be one or two or more people who would just say like blatantly racist things, um, you know, and I, I had that experience as well. I definitely had family members who, I mean, I had family members who used Asian slurs, um, mocked Asian accents and like certainly didn't have great opinions about like lots of other ethnic groups. And whenever they said these things, like, okay, like, I mean, when people say these things, are you going to be able to like push back? Are you going to be able to educate? And if they refuse to learn, are you going to be able to choose your child over those people? Um, no one really wants to have those harder conversations, but I do think they need to, you know, because like their job is to be their, their child's parent and they're like, mm -hmm you know, first, best, strongest ally. And like, frankly, their child is going to be the priority. So like, that might mean either having serious talks with or like being willing to like step back from certain relationships that could be really harmful and like toxic for that child. Um, so those are just a few things that I generally like start out saying, um, you know, and just like be willing to be like, maybe even in a position where like, you know, you as white adoptive parents are like not in the majority and your child is like, that's just so important. Um, but yeah, advice for adoptees. I mean, I always like ill-equipped to give advice, like, you know, between like it just being my perspective alone and like my experience, like everyone's life is different. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I don't know. I've, I can say what I found like the most empowering as an adopted person. And that is, you know, it is things like sharing my story. It is seeking community with and relationships with like fellow adoptees. Um, and like, I mean, I, I love getting to like edit and publish. I have an adopted um, essay series at Catapult Magazine, which I edit. I love working on that. Like that's just brought me so much joy. So um, I don't know. I, I mean, I think, I think a lot of my advice for adoptees would just be like, seek out spaces where you're supported and understood. Um, and where people like are able to acknowledge like the real complexities of your experience and like not all the time, but often, you know, some of the best spaces could be adoptee communities. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And then like within those communities, just recognize it's not a monolith. We're all different. We all have different feelings and experiences and someone else who's adopted might not feel the same way you do. 
Um, and that's also okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, ultimately, like we can support each other without having the same experiences or agreeing on every point. Um, you know, everyone's kind of going to be in a different place. But, but by and large, I have found, I've just found that to be like the most, like the most helpful and the most empowering thing. Um, so, yeah, it was very moving for me going to the con conference for the first time, like, uh, not this this past summer, but the summer before. Like it was the first time I'd been to Khan, and like I was like, oh my god, I've never been in a whole room full of Korean adoptees before. Like mm. you know, I've written this book. I'm like in my late 30s, but I had never had that experience. You know, I didn't go to like culture camps growing up. We didn't really have them near where I was. They weren't a- yeah. So like that to me was like just this overwhelming like positive supportive experience. Um, and we didn't all agree on everything, and like you know. But still, it was a very empowering space to be in. Definitely. I have yet to be in a room full of uh, Colombian adoptees. But this past year, I met a few adoptees in person for the first time before the pandemic hit. And that was really special um, to have. And I think it's it's very important for adoptees to be open to communicating and joining communities with adoptees because uh, we definitely often offer like a unique perspective on all our different experiences and um, journeys. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Um, And I think as a Korean adoptee too, like I have a lot of, again, like just a lot of privilege because there are so many Korean adoptees here and like, well, it's because the Korean adoption program has been going for so long too. Like we've mm-hmm. had generations to build up here, <laughs> but like I mean, I I know like the, that type of like gathering is like harder to come by, um, like in a lot of sort of subsets of adoptee like communities. But um, but I always find, regardless of background, when I'm with someone who's adopted and we're talking about it, it feels good. You feel kind of understood. There's so much you don't have to like start at the 101 level. There's like a lot that you can just like take for granted that they probably get. Um, Yeah. And I, you don't have to explain like your family or like all your issues. And I find, I just find that like so nice. I, I don't know. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure speaking with you and I, I hope you enjoyed your time with us. I did. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really, I had fun. I'm so glad that you joined me today. And if you would like to hear more from Adoptee Thoughts, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like to learn more about me, you can check out my website, adopteethoughts.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.